you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. This morning we are looking to Luke's Gospel to read and understand the passage commonly called the Christmas story. Interestingly enough, the account begins, though, not with Jesus, but with Caesar Augustus. Who, who was this man, Caesar Augustus? Well, he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Perhaps you read about him in school. He fought his way to power by defeating Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Perhaps you saw the movie. Either way, his position of leadership as Caesar was solidified by the stability that he brought to the Roman Empire, which endured for years. He was part of what was called the Pax Romana, the peace in Rome that everybody loved so much, at least those who benefited the most from it. Originally named Octavian, he was the first Caesar to take the title Augustus, which means holy or revered, and was in fact the Caesar who made the first steps towards um, seeing, uh, leading all of the rest of Rome to see all of the Caesars as more than men, more than leaders, but actually gods among the people. Such was the reverence for Octavian that one ancient city even bears an inscription that hails him as the savior of the whole world. In this passage that we're going to look at today, passage that we've already heard read at the beginning of our service, Luke is writing to show the birth of the real Savior of the whole world, Jesus the Christ. That's what we see in the opening chapters leading up to chapter 2 again, which we heard and we want to unpack now. And the story of this first Christmas is an amazing one, not just because of what it means, that God the Son took on flesh as the Savior of the world. That is amazing. But what is more amazing is how those events actually play themselves out in the course of human history. Christ comes and he defies all expectations of what God's Messiah, a Savior, about what God in the flesh might look like and be and do as he enters this world. Perhaps this morning he will even turn our ideas upside down about what it means for God to save sinners from their sin. It's that unexpectedness, that irony of his coming that we want to highlight today as we look to this Christmas story. We want to see this amazing, wonderful, unexpected reality of the coming of Christ, the King who saves. And we see this in four ways from our passage in Luke chapter 2. First, we see the impotence of human sovereignty. The impotence of human sovereignty. Rulers and leaders in this world have by nature of their position a certain measure of authority. Sometimes they have earned it. It has been entrusted to them by the people that they leave. Other times they have taken it violently by force and hold on to that authority by force. But far too often those leaders allow their authority to go to their heads. And decisions are made that range from the simply odd to the terribly devastating for those over whom they have authority, all from their hubris. And such is the case as our story begins this morning. And here we first see a displayed sovereignty, a displayed sovereignty. As we've already seen, when Jesus was born, Caesar was the most powerful man in the world. And all it took was a word from him. And suddenly, millions of people had to put their life on hold. What does Luke tell us? He tells us in the opening verses in those days, that is the days of the events that we have been reading about in chapter 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. Why the registration of this census? Historians agree it was almost certainly for the purposes of taxation, for the purposes of collecting money from the empire. As Phil Riken says, the policy of Rome was no taxation without registration. His plan was to squeeze as much revenue and tribute as he could, even from the farthest reaches of the empire. And that means that along with the rest of Israel, a carpenter and his expecting wife have to pack up from their home and travel to their ancestral home in Bethlehem. Think about what that would mean for this young first-time mother. We've already said that she's young, a teenager, perhaps as young as 13, definitely no older than 16 or 17. We've already said that God is the one who has supernaturally created life in her. She's not known any man, which means she has not been unfaithful to her husband, and yet her husband has still married her. And so therefore, he is also a godly and righteous man. But she is still a first-time mother. And now, assuming they could find an animal of some kind, Mary would have had to ride 80 miles to get from her living town of Nazareth to her ancestral home in Bethlehem. And unlike what we see in the movies, there's no guarantee that Mary would have actually had a donkey to ride on. She easily could have had to walk that distance. Now, if you've ever, if if you're a man here, or I guess if you're a woman, I was going to say if you're a man who's been married to a pregnant woman, but those of you that are pregnant women, this would also apply. You, You have some concept of how arduous this journey would be. Um, we have four kids, and perhaps the, the worst I've ever seen my wife had to, had to have a go at it was when we were expecting our, our third child, David, and we attended our denomination's annual meeting in Nashville. And as we were walking around this massive convention center and walking block after block to find a restaurant that we could eat in it, she had that typical rolling gait of a woman in the third trimester. I felt sorry for her even for that short of a distance. I cannot imagine Mary's situation if she had to walk this. Not to mention she bore the extra emotional weight that there's every chance she's not going to make it home before she has to deliver the baby Jesus. That means having her first baby with her new husband away from her family, away from her mother, away from everything she's ever known that would be a comfort to her growing up. Such was the sovereign power of a Caesar that thousands of lives, thousands of miles away from where he lived, were immediately and directly affected. But what Luke shows is that this is not just a displayed sovereignty, it's also a borrowed sovereignty. It is a borrowed sovereignty. Luke says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with his wife, his betrothed, who was with, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, why is all of that significant? Well, remember where Jesus was from. Remember his hometown is Nazareth. That's a problem. Why? Because the prophecies of the Old Testament about Messiah, about Christ, about the Savior of the world, are clear that he will be born in Bethlehem. That is the place of God's Messiah. And so 
being born in Bethlehem is essential to establish Jesus' credentials to Israel, to his own people, that he has come in fulfillment of the promises of God. Through the lineage of Joseph, he is a direct descendant of David. Through his birthplace in Bethlehem, he is a superior descendant, arriving in this world at David's own birthplace. More importantly, what looks like an inconvenience, what looks like one man's power trip to raise money through the taxation of his people and an empire-spanning census is actually all part of God's sovereign plan. it's It's not part of Caesar's sovereign plan. It is that, but his sovereignty is only a borrowed sovereignty. He only has as much sovereignty as God is going to give him. And I love how David Gooding puts it. He says this, quote, For Augustus, the taking of censuses was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here is the irony of the thing, in the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on the huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. In other words, Caesar wasn't the real sovereign. God was. Caesar's sovereignty was only a borrowed sovereignty. It was a loaned power from the one who controls with complete power. God himself. God shows his sovereignty in that he wanted Jesus to be born in Bethlehem and he used even a Caesar to do it. Thus Mary's song is beginning to come true. The song that she sang right after right after she, she knew what was coming in the birth and of Jesus, she sang that God has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's exactly what God is doing. That's exactly what he is doing is showing his sovereignty over Caesar. The second thing that we see, the unexpected reality, is the humility of divine presence. The humility of divine presence. God uses Caesar to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And while they were there, he says, the time came, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, in these two simple verses, Jesus comes into the world in one of the most complicated, mysterious, and glorious doctrines in any system of religious thought is summarized. Here we have a description of the incarnation of God. God the Son stepping out of heaven as it were, taking on the flesh of humanity, flesh like our own, to live and grow and serve and die as the Savior of the world. What do we see glimpsing the incarnation in these two short verses? First we see Jesus' humble birth. We see his humble birth. Sometimes the amazement factor of Christmas is lost on it because we're so familiar with it. But think about the humility demonstrated in the birth of Jesus. Think about who is being born here. This is God the Son, the one who has dwelled in unapproachable light from eternity past. This is the one through whom Paul says all things were created and the one for whom all things were created. He is the one who deserves the most imagination-defying, mind-boggling entrance from heaven to earth in all of human history. You put any movie effect that you have ever seen into your mind, and Christ is worthy of a million times that for the spectacular glory that is deserving of this amazing entrance. But how does he come? 
by having his divine being joined to a human baby from conception, growing nine months in the womb of a young peasant virgin and experiencing the birth of normal humanity in all its earthly glory. Make no mistake, this is a real birth. It's not a show. Jesus was a real man. He isn't playing games here. He's not feigning infancy. Though fully God, he has temporary, temporarily laid aside those divine attributes. He is not employing them as he could because the Father has told him to that he might experience the fullness of human growth. So he's not laying there, eyes barely open, squeezing mom's finger thinking... Right now, I'm holding up all the universe by the word of my power. I'm just pretending not to be able to speak. (laughs) He's not doing that. He is an infant. He knows nothing but the memories you and I had at that age. He knows nothing but the experiences and the raw emotion that is there at that age. That is the mystery of the incarnation, just like the rest of us. 2,000 years ago, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Almighty Lord was cradled by his mother as she cleaned him off from his messy entrance into the world. And instead of trumpets and fanfare and celebration, there was only a newborn crying as air filled his lungs for the first time and two new parents wondered what they would do with this life that had been entrusted to them. We see his humble birth. We also see his humble reception. His humble reception. Last year when Prince William married Kate Middleton, nine million people viewed the BBC's Royal Wedding live feed website. 24.5 million people watched the live TV coverage. Some of you got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to watch that. 5,000 police officers were on duty at the event. Afterwards, 140 tons of garbage was removed from the processional area. 120 miles of bunting was sold by one store. 5,500 streets were petitioned to be closed for local street parties by British citizens across the empire. Kate's dress had a train measuring 8.85 feet, and the workers who made the dress washed their ha- stopped and washed their hands every 30 minutes so as to ensure as much as possible the lace was kept as pristine as possible. That's mind-boggling, but it is fitting the wedding of the future king of England. What would have been fitting the entrance of the king of all the universe? Phil Reichen again is helpful to us and is surely right when he says, Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire creation, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have creation itself offer him worship with rocks crying glory and the galaxies dancing for joy. He is God the Son. And anything less than absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to divine dignity. But what did he get? God comes to town and he can't even get a room. Instead of royal robes, he is wrapped in strips of cloth. Instead of a penthouse of the Bethlehem Ritz, he is out in the cold with the animals. Luke says his parents laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, an inn back then is not what we're used to today, or 
what we may have in our heads. It was likely a larger guest room or guest house attached to someone else's private dwelling where visitors would have just stayed in a large common room. And for the census, all of those rooms were packed to capacity. No one had room to spare. So Joseph did the best that he could, finding lodging with the animals. That might have been another room in a house or even a separate building altogether. It might have been an enclosed field. It could even have been a nearby cave, as one early church father tells us it was. Regardless, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were with the animals. We know that from the presence of the feeding trough that became his bassinet. Jesus had a humble birth. He received a humble reception. And all this points to his humble association. His humble association. Why did Jesus come into the world this way? After all, he he chose to come into the world this way. This was no accident. We already saw that God moved an entire Roman Empire to make it possible for Joseph and Mary to get to Bethlehem. He could have come in any number of ways, but this is the way he chose to make his entrance into the world. Why did he come to such humble conditions? Think about the fact that he could have been born into the halls of power. He could have been born as the daughter of the high priest in Israel. Why did he come in such humble conditions? The Bible is clear that he was born this way, that he might better be associated with us. If Christ came and received the adulation that he deserved, we might be tempted to think it was an honor for him to take on humanity. But it wasn't. It was a humiliation. It was a humbling experience that was necessary that he might fully identify with us so that he could stand in our place and be our savior for it's only in suffering and death as a man that christ could save sinful men that's the second unexpected reality that we see the third is this the third unexpected reality of christmas is the obscurity of promised glory the obscurity of promised glory. There is a principle that's easy to see throughout the Bible when it comes to God's communication with humanity. God acts and then he always explains his actions. In other words, when God does something in the world, he never leaves it up to us to figure it out. He doesn't do something and leave us saying, I wonder what that was about. Why is God doing this? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. God always explains what he did and why he did it and what it means for us. And the incarnation is no different. God wants to make known to us what he has done. And even here we see it is surprising to us. First, we see God giving glorious news, glorious news. And as we try to understand that, we notice, first of all, the content of the news, the content of the news. Luke says in verse 8, in the same region, that is the same region of Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph were and Jesus had just been born. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the, their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord showed all around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Every single word that that angel says is important, but at the heart of it all is this truth. He brings good news of great joy. What is this news that he has brought to them? News of a birth. 
Who is born? A son is born. Where is he born? He is born in the city of David, and he is none other than Christ the Lord. The reality is that his birth is going to bring great joy for all the people. We will unpack that more in a minute, but here it's important that we understand something about the recipients of the news. The recipients of the news. The angel says, unto you, unto you is born this day. One pastor says, unto you is the ancient equivalent of a gift tag. From me to you. Most of you are looking forward to numerous gift tags uh, in the coming days, if not already. You're looking forward to a big pile of gifts that all say your name on the tags. Who is the you here? Who has received this massive gift of news? It's the shepherds out in the fields. They're the ones hearing this. Now, there's a lot of talk about shepherds in the Bible. They're a central metaphor for the leadership of God's people, even God himself. And in light of that, it might make sense that the shepherds were the first to hear of Christ's birth. After all, David himself was a shepherd. Christ will grow up and call himself the good shepherd. But I think there's another reason why the shepherds were the first to hear. I think there's a reason why David is highlighting the fact that shepherds are hearing the gospel for the first time. In Jesus' day, you see, shepherds actually didn't have a very good reputation. Despite all of the associations, theologically, everyday working class shepherds had a bad reputation in Israel. Because they lived with animals in the fields, they couldn't keep the ceremonial law, and therefore most of Israel believed they were unclean. They were often considered to be liars and thieves, and therefore a shepherd's testimony was not admissible in court during Jesus' day. Shepherds were despised, and yet the gospel comes to them first. The angel says, this is good news of great joy for all people. And in the fullness of the Bible, it's clear that that means all kinds of people from all peoples from all over the world. But the beginnings of that truth are seen even here, even within Israel itself. This small nation to whom Jesus is born, it is good news for all of them. It doesn't matter where you're at in life or where your friends and family are. This is good news for them. Even for the most despised of society, God is sending good news of great joy. And that great joy comes from the work of a glorious son. A glorious son. In verses 11 and 12, we see who this son is. The angel tells the shepherds that this son, the son that is born is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. First of all, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. The Gospel of Luke uses terminology of salvation more than any other. In other words, some may talk about freedom, some may talk about redemption, but actually using the word salvation, being saved, that is Luke's favorite term. Jesus has come as the Savior, one who brings salvation. Salvation from what? First of all, from ourselves. We are saved from ourselves and the destructive path that our sin leads us into as we tear apart relationships and rebel against God. Jesus saves us from our sins and therefore saves us from ourselves. But it is also a salvation from God who stands supreme as the judge of our lives and the one who will justly condemn us to hell for all of our sin and rebellion one day unless we embrace the Savior. Jesus 
stands between God and man as the God-man. He stands in place of sinners and offers his life for them on the cross. Even as God accepts that death as an atoning sacrifice that appeases his wrath and secures forgiveness for sinners. That is how Jesus saves. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is also the Christ. His work as Savior didn't come in a vacuum. That's what this is telling us. He didn't, just, he didn't just pop into existence and say, I'm here to save humanity. Even as I prayed earlier, this has been a long-promised salvation. The word Christ is a title, which means the anointed one. It comes from, comes from the Old Testament word Messiah. Jesus came in fulfillment of promises from thousands of years as God is continually giving hope to his people. And through his people Israel, hope to the entire world. You destroyed this once great creation, is what he tells humanity. He tells the first man, you have ruined it all with your sin and rebellion, but I will redeem it all. I will provide son, and he will be a savior. Finally, Jesus is Lord. How can a man die in the place of others before God? A man can't do that unless he's more than a man. As we've said all along, Jesus is God the Son in human form. Thus, when he died for sinners, he didn't stay dead because death could not hold him. He is alive. He himself is life, he tells the sister of Lazarus before he raises him from the dead. And therefore, he himself rises victorious over sin and death that were defeated on the cross. And now, as the exalted king over all things, he is Lord with authority over everything in heaven and on earth. It is from this glorious son that we then see a glorious blessing. A glorious blessing. Just as a sign was given to Zechariah that he might know the promise was true, the sign of his inability to speak and to hear. And just as Mary was given a sign that the word given to her was true, the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth, so here a sign is given to the shepherds, a, a, a little gift from God that they might know, what I have told you is true. Here's how they will know what this good news has come to pass. What that it has come to pass? They will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And with that, Luke says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Remember the peace of Caesar? Remember the Pax Romana? Do you know where that came from? Do you know how that peace was ensured? It was ensured by the sword as the boot of the Roman soldier crushed down any rebellion, trampled on any people that they conquered, and ensured peace through superior armament. We are Rome, and we will annihilate you if you resist. Great, let's have peace. Jesus comes, though, and he offers a different kind of peace. This is a peace that only God 
can bring. Not just between men and men, but between man and himself. It is a peace that does not come through destructive power, but through the offering up of one life for many. It is a peace that comes as God proclaims this truth that the shepherds hear, and he sends his spirit into our hearts that we might only believe that, but experience transformation from the inside out in our very core of our being. There is a change that happens so that now we are not we are no longer at enmity with God and other men. We are at peace with them. And therefore, it is through the power of God's love demonstrated in Christ and growing within us that peace is established in the world. God alone can bring that kind of peace. And the angel says that he is doing it through Jesus. But notice, it is not for all people. It is not for all people. Despite what we may sing, this peace isn't for all mankind. The angel says, peace, peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Who are those with whom God is pleased? Those that hear the truth of Christ and believe. Those that trust in Him. And that brings us to the fourth unexpected reality this morning, the joy of unexpected faith. The joy of unexpected faith. Imagine these poor shepherds. I mean, in some ways we envy them, but... Here these guys are, blue-collar workers, undervalued, overlooked for most of their lives, and suddenly heaven itself is opening up for them. It begins with this one angel appearing in their midst, the glory of the Lord. I have no idea what that is. I can only imagine it means something bright and shining all around them, declaring to them this word of the gospel, and then a multitude. That, That means not just... You know, many, but multiplication of many. All of these angels, the heavenly host, they're catching a glimpse of the reception Christ should have received when he comes into this world. Eventually, these angels all go away. And we hear they believe the message that they heard, but notice how they get there. Notice how they arrive at faith. First of all, what we see is that their faith is an investigated faith. It's an investigated faith. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds don't just say, wow, that's great. What do they say? We say, we want to see this for ourselves. If this is true, we should find the baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, something you don't see every day. Let's go hunt him out and find him. So you can imagine, they go from house to house. You got people staying with you for the census? Yep. You got any babies in a manger? What are you talking about, man? Get out of here. Get back out in the fields with the, with, with the shepherds. You've been hanging out with the sheep too long, and from door to door they go, seeking out. You got any babies in a manger? They're looking for a newborn baby. You got any other? Listening for crying. And eventually, that's what they find. With haste they went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Friends, Christianity is never afraid of investigation. Christianity is never afraid of history. Despite what you hear on the History Channel, which is really the our own idea channel half the time when it comes to the Bible, not trusting the sources that are clearly historically reliable, Christianity and, and the stories that are there are historically reliable. And there's one famous story that comes from archaeology. You have for for who knows how long, archaeologists saying, you know, the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho is completely made up. It's completely false because there's no such place as Jericho. We can't find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. Therefore, the biblical account is wrong. And then guess what happens one day? Some guy and his team are out digging in the middle of the desert somewhere, 
and they find this city and they read the inscriptions and what's it called? Jericho. And suddenly the Bible is vindicated. Yeah, people that you, that you say, pinnacle of the temple, you know, Jesus is brought to the pinnacle. There's no pinnacle of the temple. What are you talking about? And guess what? Even today, you realize they're excavating out in Jerusalem and in the Middle East. They're, they're still digging down and finding things. And guess what they find? They literally find a, a placard that says, the pinnacle of the temple. Christianity is not afraid of investigation. Christianity is not afraid of you asking the hard questions. It will always be proven truthful, even as these shepherds themselves found out. They heard the good news of Jesus, and they searched it out. They heard about the Savior, and they said, let us go and see it for themselves. And what happened? They demonstrated a proclaimed faith, a proclaimed faith. In verse 17, Luke says, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. This is true. This is real. We were not hallucinating out in the field. Those really were angels. That was really a message from God that is really his son, the Savior, the long-promised Christ. He has arrived. What are we going to do? We're going to tell people about this amazing thing. How can we not? And so they go around telling. It says they made known to them everyone that they saw concerning what they had heard. Not just go and see this kid, but we saw angels and they told us, this is what this kid is all about. This is who he is and what he is going to do. They couldn't contain themselves when they heard of this wondrous news. One simple application is simply to say this, Christians, if you've heard this wonderful news and you've believed it, can you contain yourself? When's the last time, even during this Christmas season, it has bubbled out? As someone has said, Merry Christmas, and you say, yeah, it is. And you go on to quickly and summarily, summarily explain to them why you believe in Christmas, the reality of Christ. But notice, despite their proclaimed faith, the news of Jesus' birth led to two kinds of responses. Luke says in verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. People were admittedly surprised at their story, right? You can imagine their skepticism given even the source of this news. Could it be true? Could, could, could the Savior have come? And, and could the angels appear to these guys and told them? Can they be trusted? This thing would have been something they would have been talking about for months. But think especially about Mary here as she is highlighted. Surely the coming of the shepherds must have encouraged her. I think that's part of the reason why Luke says that she treasured these things. She's had this journey to Bethlehem. She's had this delivery. And she might be discouraged of the promise of God. She, we have no idea what she would have expected. But remember her response was, your will be done. Let it be so. And now she's thinking, I'm not sure I wanted to pray that. I'm not sure I wanted to travel 80 miles away from, from everything that I knew and, and be in this uh, stinky animal hole uh, with my first child. I, I, am I betrothed? I'm not sure I wanted this. And yet suddenly here are these shepherds bowing down and worshiping her son, giving honor to her. How, how that must have encouraged Mary and helped her remember as if God himself were there saying, don't worry, this is, this is all going according to plan. But that still isn't enough, even for Mary. When God showed up, she said this is the plan. She was ready and willing to go along with it. But now, this is something more. And Luke says that Mary ponders these things in her heart. That word means to be puzzled about something and trying to figure it all out. It's like some of you bent over a Sudoku book. You are pondering the puzzle. And that's exactly what Mary is doing. Now that Jesus is born, the events are playing out. It's taking her longer to fully come to terms with the message of the gospel. 
the nature of her son and his mission. It's, it's longer for her. She's not yet believing it. But not so the shepherds. They've investigated. They've believed. They've shared. And now they've praised. And this is the last thing that we see. Their faith is a praising faith. A praising faith. Verse 20. The shepherds returned, that is, returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told him. The shepherds got it. They heard who Jesus was. They saw him for themselves and they believed. What was the result? They experienced the joy of this great news. For salvation had come to Israel even to outcasts like them and they went away praising God for it. Luke has written this book and certainly these opening chapters that we might understand that Jesus truly is the promised Savior of the world. He is God's gift. The, the first, as it were, Christmas gift to humanity. The only way that we can be right with Him. And this morning all of us, all of us stand with a decision to make. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners according to the promises of God. And we can investigate and we can try to figure it out. I, I would encourage you, if you're here and you say, you know, I'm not sure about this Christianity thing. I'm not, I'm not sure about Christ. You've heard the news this morning. And, and I would encourage you, pick up the book and read about him. Finish reading through the Gospel of Luke. See who Jesus was. See who he claimed to be. See what he did. See what God did through him. But at the end of the day, we, we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision whether or not we're going to believe Jesus is the Savior. Are we going to trust the entirety of our life to this man? Not only our life now, but the life to come. When perhaps we've been in an auto accident and, and we can feel the life draining from us, are we going to exit this life in fear or with joy and hope and confidence that Jesus is waiting for us on the other side? Perhaps we'll be old and infirmed, gasping for our last breaths in a hospital bed. Are we, are we going to, to go out with joy and with hope and with confidence? As, as we live even now in this Christmas season, a time that statistics show us over and over again is fraught with stress and depression. Is that going to mark our lives? Or are we going to march ahead even in the midst of tiny bank accounts? Illness, so many of the things. Are we going to march ahead with joy and hope and confidence that Jesus is our Savior, that he is the Lord over our lives? He is the shepherd that was once despised but is now exalted as the king over all things. What decision are we going to make and how is it going to affect our lives? This is the question that is waiting for us on this Christmas Sunday. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your condescension through your son to come and to make yourself known to us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that if there is any that are here that do not know you, God, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would send your spirit to open their minds and hearts to help them to see both the veracity as well as the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the promised Savior who lived and died and rose again to bring them to God. But Father, I pray for those of us who believe as well this morning. 
God, as this world presses in on us, as we become so comfortable in the blessings that you have given to us in this country, God, that it is so easy to forget the wonder of the incarnation. It is so easy to take for granted Christ. And I pray for us, God, that you would rouse us from our spiritual slumber that you would wake us from our spiritual lethargy, that you would allow us to leave here glorifying and praising you. Uh, That would be obvious from our lives. Like the shepherds, we would not be able to contain the joy that it is to know Christ. Father, if that is not our experience, then God, work in us until it is our experience. God, whether through pain or through pleasure, God, draw us closer to you that we might be the people that you have called us to be, a people that rightly bear the name Christian. Father, in every way that we will see you work in ways that we can never see you work until the final day when all is revealed before your throne, God, we pray that you would work mightily and boldly for the sake of the kingdom of your Son and that we would rejoice and delight to see it happen. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.